Welcome to the Calvary Chapel South Bay Sermon Podcast. We are a large, multi-ethnic, multi-generational church in Los Angeles, California, and we'd love to have you visit us for a service if you're in the L.A. area. Visit ccsouthbay.org to learn more about us and to find out service times. If you have any questions, shoot us an email at hello at ccsouthbay.org. Enjoy today's sermon, and we hope to see you at church soon. As we continue our journey here in chapter 52 of the book of Isaiah, and we're really going to look just specifically uh, tonight at verses 11 through or 1 through 12 here in chapter 52. But we have reached the pinnacle of redemption, at least the story of redemption in the Old Testament. And in order to illustrate that for you before we get into this passage, if you think about why this book was written in the first place. You have a group of Israelites that have survived. They are now trapped in the city of Jerusalem. So during this time, you have Jeremiah writing. You have Isaiah writing. Uh, They have been largely hopeless. They've been facing this invasion of the, the Syrian army. They will eventually go into captivity in Babylon. Uh, They'll spend 50 years there. But they are a people looking for answers. And I think in our world, we are a people looking for answers. We're, We're looking for answers to why these things that are going on in our nation are going on, why the things in the world are going the way they're going. And we're also looking for not just answers, but solutions. What, what's, what is the, the answer of all answers to these things? And it is that question that comes into view, the answer to it, uh, here in chapters 52 and 53. And so as we turn our attention to this passage, we're looking at a piece of the Bible that has been so well documented archaeologically that we can say without question that these words were written. And we have a copy of them from 212 BC. You travel with us to Israel. We go to the shrine of the book. And in the shrine of the book, this is actually a copy. But imagine that you're staring at the actual word of God, the book of Isaiah, the scroll of Isaiah, almost 27 feet long, Oddly enough, the Hebrews knew that the proper length of a piece of paper was 11 inches about 2,200 years ago because the scroll is actually about 11 inches tall and it's about 27, it's 26 and a half feet long, but it contains every single word that you have in your English Bible is contained on that scroll. This one happens to be a copy, they keep the original in a vault Uh, But this is a very, very, very close copy to it, so you can actually walk up to it and read it. You'll notice that every two pages is sewn together. It's actually parchment. Uh, It is so fragile and so old that the oil from your fingers would actually destroy it if you could touch it. And so you're not allowed to take pictures of even the copy because there are actual scroll pieces inside the shrine of the book all around this exhibit down below it. Uh, are a number of things that uh, we would call scrolls that came out of the same caves. And so 
I think it's important for us to recognize tonight that we know these words were written before Jesus came. And if we know that these words were written before Jesus came, secular archaeologists, not Christians, not people who have a reason to say that scroll is, was written almost 250 years before Jesus actually died on the cross, but people who had every reason to say that scroll is not that old, that there were not one, but two or three Isaiahs, those are the people that have identified that that scroll is that old, and they're the ones that say every single word that you have in your English Bible is contained in those scrolls. When you look at where they were found, which is the city of Qumran, which is on the edge of the Dead Sea, so you're approximately 20 miles from Jerusalem, and if you see up in that upper corner, there's a little separate picture there. So when we travel there, we go to Qumran. We look at the exhibits of the Essene community that lived out in this place that you and I would say is about as close to being in the middle of nowhere as one could possibly imagine. Uh, it's in the Negev Desert. Um, it's almost 1,300 feet below sea level. Summertime temperatures in the 120s. Wintertime temperatures near freezing, no reliable sources of water except for rain, and so water was collected in cisterns, and yet there in those first four caves, some shepherds looking for a spare goat in 1946 finds a number of jars that contained 220 scrolls. And in them, not one, not two, but six copies of the book of Isaiah, not all of them complete, some of them very damaged from weather. But God wanted us to find, for I believe a very easy reason to discern, the book of Isaiah. It is the only, hear what I'm saying well, the only fully complete and fully legible scroll out of the 20 plus thousand scrolls that have now been found in the caves in the region. So out of all of those scrolls, the only one is Paul's favorite book, Jesus' favorite Old Testament book and my favorite book in the entire Old Testament. Why? Because it paints the full picture of God's plan of redemption. It paints a picture of the coming one, the servant of God, who would give his life a ransom for you and I. And so we've come to that passage. Would you join me? We'll pray. We'll ask the Lord to speak to us. Father, thank you for this amazing privilege to read words that were authored by the Holy Spirit, confirmed by science that they could not possibly have been written after the fact, that fully testify of you, Jesus, and do so with such precision that the inescapable conclusion of the gospel messages 
written by Matthew, Mark, Luke, John, and inspected for countless generations after the fact that you, Jesus, came, you lived a sinless life, and you died on Calvary's cross, and you did so for a purpose explained in this marvelous book is beyond our imagining, and we thank you for it. Thank you for the wonder of your word. Speak to us tonight, we pray, in these few verses. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. Now, as you might think, go back in your mind a little bit to that scroll. Imagine that you've come to a scroll that's 26 feet plus long. And remember that Hebrew reads from right to left, not left to right, as we read. And you've got that scroll, and you're trying to find a location Uh, imagine trying to find a passage, which is one of the strange things about when Jesus is in the sanctuary, when he's in the synagogue and he's given the scroll of Isaiah to read from, remember he turned exactly to a very specific place. You and I would have a very tough time doing that. So hence, the chapter and verse designations were inserted Uh, really for the first time uh, over a thousand years after these words were first written pen on parchment, they started to be annotated, little margin notes put in. But really it wasn't until the King James Bible from 1611 that, that we really had a place that we could go and say, okay, this is where that is. But sometimes those chapter and verse designations are not horribly helpful And this passage happens to be one of them, because all of chapter 52, with the exception of verses 13 to 15, um, probably should be a different subject matter or in a different chapter, and they are. But the last three verses, which will actually be part of this chapter tonight, really belong with chapter 53, and so we'll cover them in detail next time. I want you to notice how this starts. Imagine that you're a Bedouin shepherd and you're wandering around in that place called the Negev, and you have to travel up these canyons to find water that's laid in pools inside of rock crevices that have been washed out over millennia. And you're throwing rocks trying to find your sheep, and you hear a clank of a clay jar, and you somehow manage to scramble up there, and you pull out, uh, open a jar, and you, you can read Hebrew, and There it is, the words of the prophet Isaiah. And you're thinking back, oh my. Now these scrolls weren't immediately made available. And in fact, many of them escaped and ended up in the wrong hands. And it's taken quite some time to collect them. But we now know that these are the words of a single prophet on a single scroll. And we have every word that you have in your Bible. And it begins in verse 1. Awake, awake, put on strength, O Zion. And again, Zion is an interchangeable word in this context for Israel or the remnant of Israel. What's left of the Jewish people, really it's what's left of the children of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, or Jacob, the people that we would call the Jewish people. In other words, awake, put on strength, remnant of Israel. 
O Zion. Put on your beautiful garments, O Jerusalem, the holy city. And so it begins by saying, look, this is very specifically pointed towards who did the gospel come to first? The Jewish people. The Apostle Paul reminded us, the gospel came to the Jew first. Jesus said the same thing. I came to my own, but my own received me not. They didn't want anything to do with Jesus the Messiah. But the fact of the matter is, Jesus came to the Jewish people. And so it is not a mistake when you read the beginnings of what is the gospel message in the Old Testament, that it's to the Jewish people first. Awake. Put on your strength, O Zion. By this time, they're anything but strong. Imagine that these words, though we have a copy from 212 B.C., were actually pointed at a people uh, some 400 years earlier, 686. And so here are these words from the prophet Isaiah, O Jerusalem, a city that, if you think back in your mind's eye, if you were to travel away from the Dead Sea and towards the west, you'd be heading towards the Mediterranean. And you would ascend up through some of the most rocky terrain. If you've ever been to, say, Joshua Tree here in Southern California, it, it's more desert than that. There are fewer, there's almost no vegetation whatsoever. The only things that live out there are rock hyraxes and some forms of gazelle, and there's only the canyon bottoms that have any type of vegetation. It's the only place that water actually flows most of the time. Beautiful city, holy city. And it's interesting that the emphasis here is, O Jerusalem, the city of peace, Jerusalem, the city of peace, the holy city. For the uncircumcised and the unclean shall no longer come to you. There, there's coming a day of reckoning. One of the things that strikes you when you first travel, and, and I want to just again encourage you, I know that it is probably not a time, but we are still planning to go in November of this year to Israel again, if the Lord should provide a window for us to do that without masks. But one of the things that strikes you when you get to Jerusalem is, is what you could say is the, the wake-up call that Jerusalem is getting right now, because Jerusalem is the epitome of the word dichotomy. It is the place probably in most of your mind's eye when you think of it, you think of the Holy Sepulchre and the Garden Tomb and the Garden of Gethsemane, and the tomb of David, all these amazing places, the Temple Mount. David's actually hometown, David's city. You think of Golgotha, where the Lord gave his life a ransom. You think of you know, all these incredible places, the Antonia Fortress, when you go down the Via Dolorosa, and you stop on that way of tears, and as you stop on the way, and you look there, and, and you see this post that's in the middle of a courtyard that's in a convent now. And you see the sign that says, the place of Pilate's flagellation. In other words, the place of beating. And though the, the actual place is some 22 feet below what you can see, it's where Jesus was beaten. It's a real place. 
But from that place, which is on the north side of the city, just outside of the city walls, you're actually in the Arab part of the city. And there's immense filth and horrible traffic. It's mind-boggling. You have a center of prostitution in one of the Orthodox areas. You have drugs and so many problems in East Jerusalem, this giant wall that separates off the city and barbed wire, armored vehicles everywhere. Even the average police car there has metal screens over the roof because they throw bowling ball-sized boulders off of the overpasses trying to kill the police officers. Every single cop car that you see almost, with the exception of the interceptors they use for traffic things in the more metropolitan areas of the city, have giant screens on them to prevent the windshields from being busted out by rocks. They're armored so that the glass in them can take bullets. It is truly a dichotomy. And so notice the words here. The uncircumcised and the unclean will no longer come to you. There's going to be a time when Jerusalem won't be occupied this way. When you look today at the Temple Mount, there's no temple. Matter of fact, the Jews are actually not allowed on the Temple Mount for the most part. They have to get special permission, and they have to have an escort from the ruling Muslim government, the Quaf, to actually go on the Temple Mount. They cannot pray up there. As a Christian, if you get caught praying, you'll be asked to leave, and if you don't leave, you will be escorted out. It's this crazy dichotomy. You see these giant mosques, the Al-Aqsa, the Haram al-Sharif, the, the Dome of the Rock, as most of us know it. The Dome of the Chain, the Golden Mosque. There's now a mosque in Solomon's Stables. Solomon's Stables, of all things, is occupied now by Muslims. And again, we need to pray for the Muslim people to come to faith. It's the only way that they become saved as well. But the fact of the matter is, it's not a holy city. It has places that remind us of things in the life of the Savior, to be sure. But it's a mess. And yet Isaiah is saying, the uncircumcised. Remember, it was the Jewish people that were circumcised. It was everyone else. It was all the Gentiles that were not. The bitterness, you, you, you go into the markets, you see little stalls, people selling hashish and all this crazy stuff going on. But one day, Jerusalem's going to be the holy city of God again. Matter of fact, Jesus himself is going to rule and reign from Jerusalem. He's going to put his feet down on the Mount of Olives. In other words, redemption is actually coming to the Jewish people. Notice as it says these things, it goes on to say in verse 2, Shake the dust from yourself. Arise and sit down, O Jerusalem. You see, the only reason that you can sit is you're at ease. 
During a time of war, you never sat. You were up all the time. You stayed awake at night. You walked everywhere you went. You, you were vigilant. You kept watch on everything. But it's saying, sit down, O Jerusalem. Loose yourselves from the bonds of your neck, O captive daughter of Zion. You see, at this time, they were actually, for all intents and purposes, imprisoned in the city. They couldn't go anywhere. But the Lord is speaking to them. That won't always be the case. You're going to be loosed. You're going to be free. And while I'm not making a, a political argument here, when you travel to Israel, you can't help but be affected by the politics of the region. It's impossible. There are areas you're, you can't go in, that you should not walk in, that you're not welcome to go through. There are massive signs that basically say, stay out on threat of your life. And it's not because Israel doesn't want you to go there. It's because it actually is almost a country within inside of a country. We call it the West Bank or the Gaza Strip or parts of the Golan. You see, even within their own country, they're not safe. If you build a, a home in northern Israel, anywhere north of the northern shore of the Sea of Galilee, it is a federal law that you build your home with a safe room capable of taking a direct hit from at least a 250-pound bomb. Why is that? Because it's not safe. Israel is still surrounded by its enemies. They're still hated. They still haven't come to faith in Messiah. For thus says the Lord, you've sold yourselves for nothing and you shall be redeemed without money. Anybody here thankful that you weren't redeemed with money? Amen? Peter said you weren't redeemed with silver and gold, by the way. Or in 1 Peter chapter 1. Not with money, but with the precious blood of the Lord Jesus Christ. Amen? Amen. See, this is the message that this is the message the Jewish people are getting from Isaiah the prophet. In 686 BC, a copy of which we have from 212 BC, before Jesus ever was born. This is the message. The Jewish people had sold themselves for nothing. They had constantly, they had a history a 1,500-year history of trying to buy peace. Land for peace. Sound familiar to you? It's because it's still going on today. They keep saying, we'll give up more land and we'll give you peace. There's no more land to give up. It's because that's not the problem. The problem is the Prince of Peace has not invaded the hearts of the people and so they walk, still walk in darkness. They're still walking contrary to the things of the Lord because Isaiah said you'll not be redeemed with money. And in a, a very much deeper sense, 
it, it draws a question. How many people today, not just the Jewish people, but how many people today sell themselves for something? Might be drugs, might be money, career, alcohol, fame, fortune. Maybe be good for 10, 15 years at a sport. How many people sell their soul for something? I think that's why Jesus said what he said there in Mark 8. What should it profit a man? If you gain the whole world, but lose your soul. And so it asked the question, and you can almost hear Satan asking this question of you. What's your price? Think about it. Think about your own life and tell me if it's not true that at some point in your life there was some temptation of something that the enemy threw your way to tempt you to sell yourself into slavery to him. Sometimes it's education. A lot of people do it for a career. Sometimes you, you want to marry that one person, but that one person doesn't know the Lord and doesn't want to know the Lord. Maybe it's some type of substance abuse. It's all kinds of things at the enemy. What's your price? What's it going to take to buy you? You see, that's the question that's being posed to the Jewish people. You sold yourself for nothing. Because all that stuff that Satan throws at you, ultimately, in the end, is absolutely nothing. It's not worth it. He tries to convince you it's going to be worth it. And then all of a sudden you figure it out and it didn't quite work out the way you thought it was going to work out. And now you're in that situation. Now, now you're really fighting for your, for your soul, really. What kind of price? What, what's, what's your price would be another way. Because during Israel's time, they sold themselves for nothing. It ultimately ended up nothing. The Assyrians, guess what? Didn't save them. The Babylonians, guess what? Didn't save them. Their heathen kings that followed after Balaam and Molech and Ashtaroth and Baal, guess what? Did not deliver what it promised. They looked at all the foreign lands, the people around them, and saw that they were partying underneath the oak tree, and they said, man, that looks awful good. Well, we'll just sell ourselves for some of that. And it didn't work out. It didn't pay off. That's because the enemy of your souls, and you can see this as you read John chapter 8, picking up there roughly in verse 31 and all the way down through the end of the chapter, Satan is a liar. That's what he does. It's one of his chief tactics. And so he says, "Ah, oh, you know, uh, can I have your soul for a million bucks? 
maybe 10 million, how about a billion bucks? Today we're, we're so crazy, we're starting to talk in trillions. What would you sell your soul for? The answer should be, there is no price. I'm not for sale. Check this out. Jewish people sold themselves for nothing. Not, there isn't a price. I'm not for sale. You can have me for nothing. Just give me some food, give me some wine, give me some women, give me something. But actually, I don't, I don't even, I'm for free. But what was the price that God was willing to pay for you? You see, Satan will take that and say, you're right, you're worth nothing. I want you for free. You're in up to your neck. But the truth of the matter is, you're so valuable to God that he gave the most precious thing in the entire universe to redeem you. And his name is Jesus. He gave his own son. He allowed his own son to be put to death to redeem you. The enemy says, what can I buy you for? God says, I'll pay everything. I'll pay it all. Don't mistake what's being said here about salvation. To God, you're worth every drop of his son's blood the most precious substance in the universe. To Satan, you're worth nothing. Don't be fooled. To mark this for the Jewish people, they're reminded of a time that is still yet future to us tonight. One that's designated by a simple phrase that we see over and over and over, and we'll look at Zechariah 12 to see that. For thus says the Lord God, and now he explains it, my people went down at first into Egypt to dwell there. Why did they go there? Disobedience. They lied. They deceived. They cheated. They wouldn't follow God. They didn't want what he was offering. They tried to do it themselves. They believed Satan's lie. They took the junk deal and sold themselves for nothing. That's why they ended up in Egypt. And so this is an illustration. Into Egypt first to dwell there. And then the Assyrian oppressed them without cause. Now listen to this. Think of what you know about the Bible. So here you have this story. Joseph ends up going down to Egypt, and finally the children of Israel are released, but they end up going back down there. They make mud bricks for 400 years. 
Moses comes along and finally goes before Pharaoh on the 10th try and says, okay, this isn't going to work out very well for you because tonight your firstborn are going to be required of you. And everyone who does not have the blood of the sacrificial lamb on his doorpost and the lentils of his home, this way and this way, making the shape of a cross, blood's not covering you, you're dead. That's how they escaped. If the blood's not covering you, firstborn's going to die. And the whole night, you remember what the Bible says? They listen to the wailing of the handmaids throughout the evening. As baby after baby after baby after baby after baby, Jew and Gentile alike died. Because if you weren't covered by the blood, you were dead. Now they escaped. How many? A whole lot of them. And they did that miraculously. What happened? God performed a miracle. Opens up the Red Sea. They cross on dry land. The Egyptians try and follow them. And the Spirit of the living God takes every last one of them. But now they're in the wilderness of sin. What do they do in the wilderness of sin? They go wandering. What happens to you when you're in sin? You go wandering. What happens when you wander too long? You end up needing God. What happened to them? They ended up needing God to do a miracle. What did he do? A miracle. Several of them. He fed them manna and quail and water from a rock. And then they figured they had it all done for themselves, and they started to get on Moses' case. Moses, go ahead and strike the rock again because we're thirsty. Nope, only supposed to strike it once. They end up at the border of the land. They're at Kadesh Barnea. The spies look at, we're not going down there. I know God told us to go, but we're not going. This is all super important to the context of this passage. To dwell there, and then the Assyrian oppressed them without cause. Who did they meet once they came into the promised land? Well, first there were giants, and then the Assyrians. They came from Nineveh, the most mighty army on the earth at the time. Had war chariots the world had never seen, archers, bronze arrows, bronze-tipped arrows, harder than iron. What happened? Now they're trapped in Jerusalem. You think God was trying to tell them something? You've been down this road before. You know the end of the story. I'm going to tell you one more time. This is not what I want for you. Don't believe the lie. Turn to me. And now, therefore, what have I here, says the Lord, that my people are taken away for nothing? Those that rule over them make them wail, says the Lord. 
And my name is blasphemed continually every day. And therefore, my people shall know my name. And therefore, they shall know in that day that I am he who speaks. Behold, it is I. God is basically saying, when I speak to you, it would probably be a really good thing if you listened and learned and then did what I asked. Because it never works out well for the person who's disobedient to the Lord. Now, God being who he is, gracious, kind, merciful, eternally good, doesn't overdo it on the punishment thing, but he's also truthful. And so when he tells us this is what's going to happen, we might want to listen. The Jewish people, again, did not listen. The Assyrians didn't do the trick. So now the next group's going to be the Babylonians. And after the Babylonians, the Greeks. And after the Greeks, the Romans. And after the Romans, finally a world empire. We call it the Byzantine Empire. Emperor Constantine, 400 A.D., makes the Roman Empire into the Christian Roman Empire. But they're still not following the Lord. They're still going the other way. And so Zechariah chapter 12 gives us a little window into this day that's being spoken of here called in that day. The Lord will save, verse 7 of Zechariah 12, the tents of Judah first, so that the glory of the house of David and the glory of, here it is, the inhabitants of Jerusalem shall not become greater than that of Judah. In other words, all that will be left will be the people in Jerusalem. For in that day, the Lord will defend the inhabitants of Jerusalem. The one who is feeble among them in that day shall be like David. And the house of David shall be like God. Has the house of David been like God since David's time? Not yet. Like the angel of the Lord before them. Again, not yet. It shall be in that day that I will seek to destroy all the nations that have come against Jerusalem. Is that true? Not yet. And I will pour out on the house of David, on the inhabitants of Jerusalem, the spirit of grace and supplication. And then they will look on me whom they, what? Pierced. Yes, they will mourn for him as one who mourns for his only son and grieve for him as one who grieves for his firstborn. It's pretty clear that this is talking about Jesus. For in that day, there will be a great mourning in Jerusalem, like the mourning of Hadad Ramon in the plain of Megiddo. The land shall mourn in every family by itself, the family of the house of David by itself, their wives themselves, the family of the house of Nathan by itself, and their wives by themselves, the family of Levi by itself, and their wives by themselves, and Shimei. And the families that remain, and every family by itself, their wives by themselves. In other words, this is speaking of a national day of repentance. They're going to mourn. They're going to look on Jesus in that day. 
because the Lord is going to come back and destroy all the nations that have come against Jerusalem. Speaking of the battle that we call the Battle of Armageddon, the very last days, you see the Lord keeps his promises. And there's going to be a day when national Israel is going to come to faith. They're going to mourn the one that they pierced. In comes the beauty of the good news, the gospel. How beautiful upon the mountains are the feet of him who brings the good news. The word gospel actually means good news. Who brings the gospel, who proclaims peace. How do you have peace? In the greatest sense, you have peace with God through trusting Christ as your Savior. Amen? Otherwise, you're still at war. The Bible is very clear on this. If you do not have Christ as Savior, then you are effectively still at war with God. Because peace only comes from the Prince of Peace. And if you don't have the Prince of Peace, you don't have peace. So again, this is looking to eternal things. Who proclaims peace? Who brings glad tidings of good things? And here it is. Who proclaims salvation? Who says to Zion, that would be the city of Jerusalem, the remaining Jew- Jewish people, your God reigns. Now let me ask you a very simple question, and I think most of you will get it. Did any of the temple sacrifices, the feast days, ever have the capacity to save anyone? The answer is no. No. There was no salvation until the price was paid. You could point to it. You can say this is what it looks like. But notice what it says. Who proclaims salvation. In other words, the actual gospel that's being spoken of, the good news in verse 7, is the gospel of salvation. Actually being saved. The earliest that could have happened was about AD 32, 33, when Jesus died on Calvary's cross. Because it was not until then. And now it says that God after that time is going to bring the nations to Jerusalem and he will deal with them personally. You see, this is good news. It's the thing that Paul remarked about in Romans chapter 11. That one day all Israel will be saved. That there will be a revival in the land of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. And so we have a prophetic proclamation of the gospel of Jesus Christ right here in the book of Isaiah. Exactly what Peter spoke of. If you remember the book of Acts when we studied through that, chapter 4 and verse 8, and then Peter, filled with the Holy Spirit, said, rulers, elders of Israel, If we this day are judged for a good deed done to this helpless man, by what means has he been made well? Then let it be known to all of you, to all the people of Israel, that by the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth, whom you crucified, whom God raised from the dead, by him, remember what they had done, they had healed this man. He's now standing whole before them. By him, by who? Jesus, this man stands before you, made whole. 
And then he says to them, this is the stone which was rejected by you builders, which has now become the chief cornerstone. This is Messiah. This is the one that you pierced. This is who Isaiah was talking about. This is who Zechariah was talking about. This is who David was talking about. The one that you pierced is the one that we're talking about. The stone. The one you crucified. And then he says something that's inescapable. Verse 12. Nor is there salvation in any other. So when Isaiah says salvation will be proclaimed to you, the good news will be brought to you in Zion, the only name that they could have been referencing, either Peter or Isaiah or the Apostle Paul or anyone else, was the name of Jesus. Because it says very plainly, for there is no other name under heaven given among men whereby we must be saved. That's not a question, that's a statement. The good news has always been the good news of the pierced one, Jesus. And how beautiful is that good news? It's always amazing to me when the church gets caught up in something other than the good news. And while we teach the Bible in its entirety cover to cover, as well we should, we teach the full counsel of God's word, the primary function of the church is to preach the gospel. It is that that begins the journey of sanctification. That's where you start as a believer. And so the rest of the word of God that is not directly the gospel itself, the part that transforms you as your mind is renewed, as your head is now filled with things that are of the Lord, the reason that that stuff can even work on you is because you had the gospel preached to you. Without the gospel and without salvation, the Bible is actually just like any other book of philosophy. It's just another way to live. But because the gospel is the only way to be saved, notice what Peter said, same truth that Jesus himself teaches in John 14, 6. I am the way and the truth and the life and, say it, no one comes to the Father but by me. The truth of the gospel is that's why the church has to be on mission. The mission of the church is not politics. It never has been. The mission of the church is not all these things that we get involved in. The mission of the church is principally, primarily to preach the gospel. And then you teach the truth to people who have already been saved. If you skip the gospel part, then the rest of it is simply philosophy. It is no better than Buddhism then. It isn't better than Hinduism. Hinduism teaches some very kind ways of living. Some nice death to self principles. Without the gospel, the saving knowledge of Jesus Christ, the church is powerless. The church is powerless without the gospel. Make sure you understand that. Because it is salvation that allows one to live one word of what's contained in the rest of it. Without it, there's no indwelling of the Holy Spirit. There's no empowering of the Holy Spirit. 
Without it, you don't have the power of God that is unto salvation. The faith that comes by hearing comes by the word of God. Why do you have that? So that you can believe on the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and be saved. So let's stay on mission, church. Doesn't mean that every single word that you ever have to say is the gospel itself, but every single thing the church does should point people to faith in Jesus Christ. That is the true mission of the church. It is not to transform a democratic way of life into something that looks more godly. That is not the mission of the church. It's the reason we have the problems in Washington, D.C. right now. It's because the church got confused and it became a political action arm. And if we don't stop this, the church is going to lose its power. Because the power of the church is in the gospel of Jesus Christ. And so Jesus, speaking through the Apostle Paul, reminds us to come apart and be separate. We're to be not conformed to this world, but transformed by the renewing of our minds, the Apostle Paul writes there in Romans 12. All of those things come through being saved. You cannot have your mind transformed. You will be conformed to this world unless your mind is transformed. Don't miss this. The only way that, as John said, that you will not love the world or the things of this world, the only way that happens is through exactly what Isaiah knew. Salvation is of the Lord. The good news is the good news. And so to that end, we get an intro to our next study in verses 13 to 15, which we'll primarily cover next week. Behold, my servant. What's he bringing? The servant is bringing the good news. What's the good news? Salvation. You see how clear this is? This is not some, you know, wow, you really need to be a theologian to figure this out. This is a simple transition from thought to thought to thought to thought to thought. He shall be exalted and extolled and be very high. Just as many as were astonished at you. This is the one who brings good news. And so his visage, his appearance, was marred more than any man. And his form more than the sons of men. You starting to see a picture of Jesus on the night he was crucified yet? And so he shall sprinkle many nations. What did he sprinkle them with? The price of redemption. A price that wasn't silver or gold. It wasn't the nothing price of the enemy. It was God's price. It was the price of his own son. 
Kings shall shut their mouths at him. For what had not been told them they shall see, and for what they had not heard they shall consider. And so we'll pick up this thought next time, but just a few words. As you think on this, you can see the vicarious suffering of the Son of God. What happened to Jesus? He was beaten, punched, bruised. His blood was spilled. And yet the whole time he brought the good news. What was Pilate doing? Are you not going to answer me? Jesus answered not a word. Remember the words that you're reading in Isaiah were written almost 700 years before Jesus set foot on this earth as a baby. That's why Paul would write what he writes to the Philippian church, who in the form being God, thought it not something to be grasped, to be equal with God, yet he humbled himself and took upon the likeness of men, or the form of man came in the likeness of man, and being humbled, he became a servant. What's Isaiah writing? God's servant. What did Jesus say is the greatest thing that a human being can ever be? A servant. For he who desires to be great among you shall become the servant of all. Isaiah saw that servant. Isaiah saw Jesus. Saw the sprinkling of the blood that would save me. That's why when Jesus came to this earth, remember some of the things he said. Father, if there's any way this cup can pass from me, let it be so, but nevertheless, not my will be done, but thy will be done. What was God's will? Isaiah told us that he would preach salvation. In order for there to be salvation, the price has to actually be paid. That was the failure of the Jewish religious system. The price was never paid in full. There was a down payment. There was atonement made on the Day of Atonement. There was a price that was paid, but it was not sufficient to wipe out everyone's sin. It was enough to put away the wrath of God for one more year. That is the difference between the Old Testament sacrificial system that the Jewish people followed. It pointed them to the need, but it never paid the price. Jesus paid the price. Jesus made the final transaction legal and said, here it is. I will sprinkle many nations with my own blood. That's the good news. Notice verse 13 says, My servant shall be lifted up. And it's tragic to me that we sometimes have people think that that lifting up is like, well, if we just lift up the name of Jesus higher and higher and higher. No, he was already lifted up as high as he needs to go. He was lifted up on Calvary's cross for the whole world to see. And he spent his blood on that cross. He need go no higher than that. You can't lift him higher than the cross. You can't make him greater because he's God. He is the one and only Savior. 
There is no other. He said that. Peter said that. Paul said that. That's why Jesus said in John 12, if I be lifted up, not up above the heavens, up on the cross, I will draw all men unto me. And so the cross is predicted right here in Isaiah. If the servant be lifted up. So when Jesus is wandering around Galilee, saying, he desires among you must be because the servant of all. Do you want to be great? You can't be any greater than Jesus. You can only try and emulate him. Notice it says, just as many were astonished, his visage, visage marred more than any man. What it actually says in Hebrew, his face was so marred that he could not be recognized as a man or even a human being. Now does it make sense that we're told in the Gospels that Jesus had a bag put over his head? And the soldiers mocked him, saying, who hit you? Tell us. Now, I don't know how many of you have played sports at any level beyond, you know, maybe your youth. But I can tell you something that happens as you get a little better at most sports. You develop some very keen instincts. You have reflex actions to most things, and most of the time those reflex actions judge what's going to happen next. And especially in martial arts, you learn to get out of the way of punches very quickly. That's the best defense is to not get hit. Now imagine that you are not only defenseless, you can't do anything with your hands, but someone has placed a bag over your face. And they just punch you and punch you and punch you and punch you. Isaiah understood that the Lord Jesus would be beaten to the extent that you wouldn't even recognize him as a human being. 700 years before Jesus took that beating. Ask the servant. I pray that you will take these things and when people question whether the Jesus of the gospel was real. You see, the historical Jesus is without controversy. There are very few secular historians that won't agree that Jesus existed. Very few. But this whole Messiah thing, you can point them to the book of Isaiah. You can point them to the Dead Sea Scrolls. You can point them to what Isaiah said and what we knew before Jesus came and say, would you like to try and explain this to me? Because Jesus is Messiah. Amen? Amen? 
That's why people who had not been told will see it. That's why the gospel is universal. People that didn't understand will know it. And we need to preach it. Amen? Would you pray with me? Father, we thank you for the great love that you have for us. Lord, I realize I'm undeserving and unworthy. And you've loved me, you've loved us with an everlasting love. You've drawn us with that cord of love and tied us together with your son. Lord, we recognize that you've chosen us before the foundation of the world, but we still need to believe and we pray, God, that that gospel message would just go out. I pray if there's anyone here tonight that doesn't know you, Lord, they've never said yes, that they would simply stop and consider in this moment what it means to believe the enemy's lies. It means to be lost forever. And so, Lord, we pray for those that might be watching online or watch this later. You, Jesus, said that if you will believe in me, you'll not perish but have everlasting life. That gospel message, that good news is that you, Jesus, God's own son, sent as a babe, born of a virgin, killed after living a sinless life, crucified, placed in a tomb of a rich man, were raised three days later, that you, Jesus, said, if we'll believe that, believe in you, that we'll have everlasting life, that we'll have forgiveness of our sin and peace with God the Father. And so, Lord, we who believe, say again, we believe. And I pray that those that have not made that profession would do so now. Lord, thank you for your love. Thank you for your grace. Thank you for your mercy. We thank you for Jesus. It's in his name we pray these things. Amen. Thanks for listening, and we hope you were encouraged by today's message. If you have any questions or just want to check us out, make sure to visit us at ccsouthbay.org. God bless you guys, and we'll see you next week.